Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. This evening we want to discuss a subject that, uh, that has become a lot more relevant. And since, like I said, since we've prayed, we'll get straight into it. And the title uh, of uh, what we're going to talk about, I guess maybe I should tell you the title in a little bit, just so we... We can introduce things first. Uh, there are two divine institutions that come to us from the Garden of Eden and before the entrance of sin into the world. Those two are? Marriage, marriage and? Sabbath. The Sabbath. Today we kept the Sabbath. And uh, we want to look at that. The Sabbath. I want to focus on the Sabbath a little bit this evening. And particularly... Uh, Something that destroys the Sabbath or destroying the Sabbath. That's the title of what we're going to talk about, destroying the Sabbath. But those two institutions are connected. They're actually both based on a relationship. One is uh, your most intimate relationship with another human being. And one is designed to give you time and fellowship with the relationship or have that relationship as far as God is concerned. They're both based uh, on relationship. Connecting with God is what happens on the Sabbath. And uh, these are the only two institutions that were given to mankind before the entrance of sin and that continue with us even after sin entered into the world. Interestingly enough, both institutions point to God as creator. He's the originator of both. And both institutions are under severe attack, particularly in the last days. If I was to ask you the question... Today, marriage is under attack in society, more so than ever before, right? In what way, or what's the means that marriage is being severely attacked today? Lots of divorce, understanding. Particularly, there's a growing movement of recent years that is redefining marriage and attaching to marriage, saying marriage is not only between a man and a woman, but marriage can be between any two people. Man and man, woman and woman. There are even people who have marriage... Uh, contracts between things. Someone married a bridge. Yeah. Someone married an animal. And they get a marriage contract from the government and this is called marriage. So what's happening is this is one means. Yeah, if you thought gay and that is bad, it's, it gets even more bizarre and outrageous. But it's a means of Satan attacking this divine institution, watering it down by attaching all these other things to it and therefore destroying the exclusive value and meaning of it. Attaching all these other things, and all these other things, they leech and they gain their importance from the marriage, because they're also called marriage. They're not marriage biblically, of course, but, but that's the point. This is how Satan is uh, seeking to destroy marriage and the family in society today. And in like manner, there is also an attack on the Sabbath. On the seventh day Sabbath. I'm not talking about marriage today. It's not my topic. Sabbath is, is the topic. But there is a similar, you know, the modus operandi, the, the methods of Satan is similar in how he tries to attack and destroy things. Sabbath is the one we want to be concerned with uh, this evening. And the idea, there's an idea that's gaining uh, more popularity. And this attack actually comes from Sabbath keepers themselves, interestingly enough. And it's not intended as an attack, but there's the idea that's gaining popularity today is that somehow the Sabbath, the seventh-day Sabbath, is incomplete on its own. And to complete it, there actually needs to be a recognition of all the other 
Sabbath days that were part of the feasts. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but the idea is present that as Christians, even particularly if you're a Sabbath-keeping Christian, you need to recognize that you also need to keep the feast days, and they have annual Sabbaths or ceremonial Sabbaths or, uh, you know, Sabbaths that appear in them as well. And uh, this notion links the feast days with the seventh-day Sabbath and uh, equating them. Or, or treating them as peers, or that they're equally valid, they're equally required, they're equally important for us to recognize. Uh, like I said, this is an idea that uh, uh, is gaining more and more popularity today. And what it does is basically by attaching these feast days with the Sabbath, the seventh-day Sabbath, and treating them as one package, what happens is the special privileges and distinctions of the seventh-day Sabbath are borrowed to infuse importance and validity to the feast days, and particularly the necessity of keeping the feast days. So what ends up happening is it lowers the one to lift up the other. And things like, you know, the Sabbath, some people portray it in different ways, like the Sabbath is a source and the feast days are a channel to communicate to us extra blessings. I'm not sure if you've heard that one or not, but that's, that's popular. Or that the feasts were actually extensions of the seventh-day Sabbath. So God blessed the seventh-day Sabbath, but you can get extended blessings if you continue to observe these feasts as well. And of course, the argument is made that, well, some of the feast days were called Sabbaths, right? So there you go. They're a natural progression or a natural extension of the seventh-day Sabbath. And we're going to explore... Uh, that as well. It, appeals, it, it, it sounds very appealing, but it's really unbiblical. We're going to look at some reasons why that is so. God has made some very clear distinctions between the seventh-day Sabbath and the feast days. And it's ignoring these distinctions and these differences that leads people to packaging them together. And in packaging them together, what ends up happening is you end up destroying the Sabbath. You lower it, you diminish its value, its distinctive blessings and importance, and you thereby destroy it. And it's a very, very clever ploy, I believe. And, and the people who do this, they're not intentionally doing that, okay? So I'm not picking on people as such, but the, I'm, I'm mainly dealing with the theology, with the concept or the requirement that says feast keeping is necessary for people in the last days. Some people even think that that's a way to keep the Sabbath more properly or more appropriately or more fully. If you haven't heard about this, you will, okay? It's, it's, uh, it's something that is, that is more common. So to, to attach the two ends up actually destroying one because as we shall see, one institution is eternal. The other institution was temporary. And if you attach something temporary to the eternal, what ends up happening is the temporary becomes more important, but the eternal becomes less important, as we just said. Now, before we look at the differences between them, I want to first of all explore the resemblance between them. So let's turn our Bibles to Leviticus chapter 23. And this is one of those places that people go to, to see or to, to pinpoint the idea that both are in the same group. Leviticus 23. Leviticus 23 is the, one of the primary chapters dealing with the feast days. And this similarity, uh, 
Let's read verses 2 down to 4. Leviticus 23, reading from verse 2. Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, Concerning the feasts of the Lord, which ye shall proclaim to be holy convocations, even these are my feasts. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of rest, and holy convocation. Ye shall do no work therein. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. These are the feasts of the Lord, even holy convocations, which ye shall proclaim in their seasons. And then it goes on to list the feasts, beginning with Passover and so on. And someone might say, see, the first thing that God said when he was talking about the feasts, the first one that's listed there is the seventh day Sabbath. So the seventh day Sabbath and the feasts are in the same category. They are one package. They are together. God put them together. They stand or they fall together. That's the argument based on this particular passage. Is this what God is saying in this passage? The answer is no. There is a similarity between the feast days and the seventh-day Sabbath in that they are both appointments in time. They both are appointments. They are both seasons that God designed to do something specific. That's where the similarity is. And that's where the similarity actually ends. They are both seasons. They are, they are time appointments. So if you have different time appointments, they are similar in that they are time appointments. But if they are for a different purpose and different things are done on them, if they are for a different uh, function, then the similarity ends there. They're just two time appointments. But that doesn't mean that everything is equal or everything is the same about them. I want to explore that a little bit because this idea has confused so many people. The word feasts here mentioned in this passage comes from the Hebrew word mawad which simply means appointment, or an appointed time. What was the Hebrew word? I don't know, the spelling varies in English. M-O-E-D, that's the spelling in, in, in English, but it will vary depending on what lexicon you consult. Uh, but this word does not always mean festival or a feast, like Passover and Pentecost and so on and so forth. It does mean an appointment. I want to look at a particular text that mentions it, and this is where some people uh, get confused about it. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 14, and then we're going to go into some of the differences. I just want to explore the similarity first and get that out of the way, that it's not as similar as some people think. Genesis 1 and verse 14. And in Genesis 1:14, we have that same word, ma'ad, the Hebrew word for that's translated feast in Leviticus, but actually means appointed time. It's actually in Genesis 1.14. Let's see if you know which one it is. It says, And God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven <coughs> to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Do you know which word there is, is the word for ma'ad? It is close, seasons. Okay, you're, you're pretty close, but it's seasons. It's a bit of a question. It's not expected that you should know the answer because we only have, have the English. But that's why I was saying, if you want to guess. The word seasons there is the word mawad. And so people have come to the conclusion and said, see, the word seasons there is mawad. What that means is the feasts were referred to in this verse. The feasts that God gave to Israel. That's not the case. Because the primary meaning of the word is not feast. It's appointment. It's appointed season. What's God trying to say? God is basically saying that there will be lights in the heavens, the sun and the, star, and the moon, to indicate the passage of days. And the purpose of them is to be for signs and for 
seasons or for appointments. In other words, if Adam told Eve, I will see you in two days, that's an appointment, right? How would Eve know to meet Adam in two days? When she sees two cycles of the sun, correct? Yes. Then she'll know that's two, that's a season, that's a maward. It's not a festival. This, the, the, the lights in the heavens were given so that man can determine certain seasons. Let's meet together next month. How would we do that if we didn't have watches and clocks and, and phones and, and all the stuff and the bleeps, beeps and clings? How would we know that? We would have to look at the heavens and see, well, after one month is after one cycle of the moon, and then we know to meet. That's a season, that's a maward, that's an appointment. So then later on when God instituted the feasts for the Jews, they are also appointments, specific ones. You with me? Not every appointment is a feast, but the feasts were appointments. The Sabbath was the very first appointment made. It happens every seven days. And this is where the similarity between the Sabbath and the feast is and ends. They are appointments in time. But then we want to explore the differences because the differences are so vast from the Bible that show you God never intended for the Sabbath and the feast days to be packaged together, to be equated or even treated in the same way. There are similarities in what they were to do in the feast because some of the days of the feast were Sabbath. We're going to explore that as well. But the first one we kind of uh, refer to, I don't need to read uh, Genesis again, but the Sabbath was made when? We already talked about it. All the way in, in, in creation week before the entrance of sin, correct? That's a very important point. The feasts, when did they begin? Okay, after sin. Depends who you ask, because like I said, some people try and make a case from Genesis 1.14 because of the word Maori there, but that's, it's not talking about the feast days. Because if you think about it, the feasts were definitely after sin. And the feast could only exist because of sin. Because they portray important events in the plan of salvation. In Exodus chapter 12, let's look at Exodus 12. This is the very first mention of the very first feast. Exodus chapter 12 and verse 14. And here... God is giving the instruction of what he will do on the day that Israel will be delivered. He tells them what to do with the lamb. And verse 14, And this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and ye shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. Ye shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. What feast is this that was instituted? When the angel would pass over if he saw the blood on the door. Correct? It's called Passover. We, we refer to it as one word, but it was the uh, indicative of the action of the angel when he would see the blood. He would pass over that house and skip that house and spare the firstborn in that house if they sacrifice a lamb, put the blood on the door. This is the origin of Passover. It's impossible for someone to observe Passover before the event of the angel passing over. Now, some people actually think Passover was instituted all the way there in the beginning in Eden. That's impossible. That's like keeping the birthday of the queen before she's even born. Okay? That's, it's impossible. It doesn't make, make any, any sense. So, the, the feasts were instituted, and this is the first feast, the Passover, and then later on God 
instituted these other feasts as well. But Passover was the primary, first, and most important uh, feast. And uh, like I said, they were also for the purpose of sin. On the seventh day, we're told that God rested on the seventh day, that God blessed the seventh day, and God sanctified the seventh day, or hallowed it, made it holy. We have no record as such of God resting, or sanctifying, or making holy any of the feast days. That's another difference. Before sin, after sin. Sanctified, holy, God rested on it. We have no record of su as such uh, for God doing that for the feast days. The, the Sabbath was made for man. A familiar passage we know in the New Testament. Jesus said it in Mark chapter 2. That's right. Sabbath was made for man. And what he means there is mankind, for humanity. It was given not to the Jews. It was given to Adam, the representative of man. And not man in the verses and not man for the Sabbath. What about the Jews? Uh, sorry, what about the feasts? The feasts were made for the Jewish nation. We just read it in this verse, uh, the end of verse 14. It says, you will keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. What's that talking about? Who's he speaking to? Who's he addressing? The Jews, he's saying this is to continue throughout your generations. This is what uh, trips up a lot of people when it says here, uh, where are we, verse 14. You shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. And people say, see, forever. That means it will continue forever. Yes, but throughout their generations. You know, God gave the exact same description about the Levitical priesthood. That they were to continue that Levitical priesthood throughout their generations forever. I'm not going to get into the details of forever right now, but I think we know from our understanding of the, of the state of the dead and, and the, the doctrine of eternal torment a lot of people hold on to, that forever in the scriptures does not always mean endlessly, but for the, for the duration that serves its purpose or its time. That there will not be a fire that burns forever and ever endlessly, that people are going to be tormented forever and ever endlessly it's until things are consumed, however long that might be. So God here is indicating that the Jews were to observe that throughout their generations. Why am I saying it's for the Jews? Let's go to John chapter 6 and see how this is described. In the New Testament, John chapter 6, another difference here. John 6 and verse 4. John chapter 6 and verse 4. And here the apostle makes a brief mention, but it's significant to what we're talking about. And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. Here he indicates that Passover was what? A Jewish feast. Jesus in the New Testament said, Sabbath was made for? Man. Passover and the feast were made for the Jews. This is how it's understood. So that's another uh, distinction. Uh, the Sabbath... Pointed, what did the Sabbath point to? We know it from the fourth, fourth commandment. What's that? Creation. That's exactly right. We know that from the fourth commandment, right? It says, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth to see and all that in them is. It pointed back to an event that happened, and it was designed, one of its purposes, to be a memorial for that particular event, creation. What about the feasts? Do they point to anything? They point? Okay, to the Exodus and, and to the cross. 
Particularly, this is what I want to focus on because it's true. It was a memorial for another event. The Exodus was. Passover was a memorial for that. But also they served another purpose in that they pointed forward to something. Paul says it. Let's read it and then we'll make, we'll make the comment. 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7. And here Paul says, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that he may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. It says Christ is our Passover sacrifice for us. So one of the purposes of Passover, and the feasts of course are part of that, is to point forward to Christ and events and activities that Christ would carry out in the plan of salvation. So the Sabbath points us back to pre-sin, to creation, to God as a creator. The feasts were to commemorate certain events, Passover was, but the other feasts were pointing forward to future events. Okay, one points back, one points forward. That's another uh, distinction, another point to keep in mind. When God gave the Sabbath, we said the Sabbath was given before sin. It preceded, or it was given before the sacrificial system. This is where it starts to get a little bit, uh, a little bit difficult for, for some people. The sacrificial system was only introduced and given to man after sin entered the world, correct? There was no need, it would make no sense. Death was not even there. It's because of the entrance of sin and death that God now instituted the greatest type, the foremost symbol to point forward to the coming of Christ. It was when Adam offered that lamb. That pointed forward to one day when the Messiah would come and be the fulfillment, would be the sacrifice to be our savior from sin. The most ancient type instituted basically at the gate of Eden was the sacrificial system. The feasts are not as important as the sacrifices because it was only later on down the line that God added to the sacrificial system specific appointments in time that they were to carry out certain things called the feast days. Let's look at it. Leviticus 23. We started there. Let's go back there. Leviticus 23. And this becomes significant when we understand what the coming of Christ accomplished. Leviticus 23. We want to look at verse 37. Leviticus 23 and verse 37. It says here, These are the feasts of the Lord, which he shall proclaim to be holy convocations, to offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord, a burnt offering and a meat offering, a sacrifice and drink offerings, everything upon his day. So according to this verse, what is one purpose for the feasts? To offer... Offerings made by fire unto the Lord, right? God now introduces these feasts and he says, here, this is, these are the feasts. And they are given to do what? To offer offerings. There are specific offerings on each day, every offering on his day. In other words, now God was adding to the sacrificial system special appointments to offer particular sacrifices. And, and you link the two, you would get fulfillments when Christ would come. In other words, the time of the Passover and the offering of the Passover lamb 
would indicate the time when Christ would be offered as the fulfillment of the Passover sacrifice. You with me? The time elements now introduce timings that Christ would fulfill as well. That's what the feasts are. And so God added to the sacrificial system special appointments, special seasons that he revealed now for the first time. So between the two, the sacrifices and the feasts, which one's more important? The sacrificial system, it preceded the feast. The feasts were added to it and attached to it. And, and they were given to offer sacrifices. Now I want to mention this because when we go to the New Testament, sorry, when we go to a prophecy in Daniel in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 9 is a prophecy of what the Messiah would accomplish. And this is a verse, Ezekiel Daniel chapter 9. This is a verse that some people use to try and actually show that the feasts are valid still. And the verse I'm looking for at is uh, verse 27, speaking of the Messiah. I'm not going to go into the details of the prophecy, but one particular point I want to focus on here. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. Who is that? Okay. Messiah, the prince of your people when he comes. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. I'm not going to deal with the last part of the verse, but the key point is, in the midst of the week, he will cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease. What's that talking about? Okay. All right, that's a good point. How did Christ cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease in the midst of the week? This is the prophetic week, okay? If you remember, if you refresh your memories... He was sacrificed once and for all. In other words, in the midst of the week, he would die. And by his death, he would bring a fulfillment of all these sacrifices and thereby cause the sacrifice and oblation to, to cease. And people say, yeah, that's exactly right. The sacrifices ceased, but it doesn't say here that the feast ceased, right? So we can keep the feasts. That's the argument, that's the reasoning. But here's the thing, brothers and sisters, the verse doesn't, does also does not say that the Levitical priesthood would cease, right? It doesn't say that the sanctuary and the services would come to an end, right? Even though that was graphically portrayed by the rending of the veil. What God is doing here in this verse, he's giving the premier, the number one, the most primary and ancient ceremonial symbol that Christ would fulfill. And therefore, everything that was later added to it and associated to it. God doesn't need to rewrite the Old Testament in one verse to tell you Christ fulfilled. He doesn't need to give you the whole list. And he also will fulfill this and the priesthood and the temple and, 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 and the feast. He's saying, listen, when he dies in the midst of the week, he will cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And everything that was dependent on the sacrifices would automatically cease with it. Can you have a Levitical priesthood that does not have sacrifices to offer? No. What about the temple? The temple was to offer, the place to offer, the sacrifice. So the priest was the person to offer the sacrifices for you. The temple was the place where you offered the sacrifices. And the feasts were the special seasons where you offered the sacrifices. So if the sacrifices are gone, then all these other things that were attached to it are automatically gone. And God expects us to think. He doesn't need to spell out everything repetitively. He expects us to understand when he reveals things. Because when he gave the feasts and the sacrifices and the temple and the priesthood, he gave them all together as one package to Israel. That package is represented by the sacrificial system. 
So it says it causes the sacrifice to cease. It doesn't literally mean only the sacrifice ceased while everything else continues. No, he gave you the umbrella term that covers everything that was dependent on. Does that make sense? Otherwise, we misunderstand a lot of things. And so, with the sacrifices gone, everything else goes as well that was dependent on it. And what, it means, what we mean by goes means it has come to a fulfillment. The reality, what they pointed forward to has now come, has now arrived. You're looking at me like you want to ask a question. Tell me. The text we just read? Daniel 9.27. So this, this is a point that's important to keep in mind, brothers and sisters, because uh, this verse is misunderstood when it comes to separating that which God has joined together. You know, we talk about it in marriage, right? When, when, we, when, when, we, get, when we do a wedding, uh, we, tell, we tell people, well, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. You know, that's a principle. It's not just, uh, you know, it's applicable to marriage, of course, but it's not just that because there are other aspects that God joins together that unless we have authorization from God, we cannot put asunder. God put together that system of sacrifices, of feasts, and all these aspects together in one package. We have no license anywhere to put it asunder or to put them aside. I'm just looking for something here that I want to mention as well. It just came to mind and I can't readily find it. Just give me half a second here and it's right there. Okay, fantastic. So does that make sense? Putting together. God put them together as a package. Nowhere has God said ever that you can keep the feasts without the need for sacrifices anymore. And there are some other elements that are involved with that. The Sabbath, another difference was not a shadow or a type. In other words, the Sabbath did not point forward to some greater fulfillment or reality that was to come. The Sabbath pointed to the Creator back. Whereas the feasts were pointing forward to a greater fulfillment and reality. They were not in and of themselves the fulfillment or the reality. They were symbols that were what, this, what we call in theology a type. A type means there is a, an anti-type or a fulfillment for that symbol. Paul indicates that in Colossians chapter 2. Let's look at that. Colossians chapter 2. Another word in the New Testament that's used for these types is shadow. Colossians chapter 2, we're going to look at verse 16 and 17. Again, this is a verse that's sometimes misunderstood. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. He says here, the apostle, Let no man therefore judge you, in meat, or in drink, or in respect of an holy day, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. I'm not going to spend too much time trying to analyze this verse, but simply we learn from this, that the holy days, which is, a, excuse me, a reference to the feast days, they are referred to as shadows. They were shadows of things to come. In other words, they are not the reality. They needed a fulfillment. A shadow requires or, or should lead you to, to the light, to the fulfillment. You know, if you, if you see someone's shadow, you're coming around the corner of a building, you see someone's shadow, you know there's someone standing there. So if you follow sh the shadow, you will get to the reality, to the substance, and you'll see the person in the light. It's a, it's a metaphor, okay? It's a symbol. That's what the feasts 
pointed forward to. There were shadows. And uh, the book of Hebrews says that as well. It says that about the law. Uh, it says in Hebrews 10, we don't have to turn there, but it says the law having a shadow of good things to come. What was the good things to come that the law uh, was symbolic of or represented? It was Christ and the plan of salvation and all the different elements there. You see, these things were not yet fulfilled. They were not, thank you, they were not real yet. They did not happen yet. They were promised. They were contained in this system of ceremonies that God gave to Israel to point forward to the fulfillment. So when the fulfillment comes, you no longer need the, cer the ceremony or the type because the antitype has come. In the, in the type-antitype relationship, you will find that the antitype is always greater than the type. The fulfillment is always greater than the symbol. And the symbol always precedes the fulfillment. It doesn't come after, it comes before. The Sabbath was not tied to, so that's another difference as well. Sabbath was not a shadow, feast days were a shadow. The Sabbath was not tied to a calendar. This is another point, and it also addresses a common uh, idea that exists. The Seventh-day Sabbath was not tied to a calendar in any way, shape, or form. How would you know when the seventh day came? Okay, because you count the cycle of days. Every seventh day, every six days that pass, the seventh one, that's the Sabbath. And then you count again. You don't need a calendar to do that. I'm saying this because some people get confused. There's an idea that exists uh, called the Lunar Sabbath. You heard about the Lunar Sabbath? You have. Oh dear, what a tragedy, huh? <laughs> The Lunar Sabbath is a tragic error. It's based on the misunderstanding, thinking that the Sabbath is based on some kind of a calendar. And people get caught up into, oh, the Gregorian calendar, and the Pope did this, and the Julian calendar, they changed it to Gregorian, and God has a calendar, and, and people get caught up in all of that. And God does have a calendar to determine the feast days, as we shall see. But the Sabbath was not based on any calendar, whether it be Gregorian, whether it be lunar, whether it be solar, whether it be astral, whatever calendar you can come up with, you don't need a calendar to determine the seven-day Sabbath. All you need is what's contained in the fourth commandment. It tells you, in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. It tells you at the beginning there, remember the seventh day, that one, to keep it holy, every seven days. That puts the Sabbath in a category all by itself, because the feast days were actually based on a calendar. The biblical calendar, which is the cycle of the months primarily. Because God, when God told Israel, oh, let's read it so you don't take my word for it. Let's go to, let's go to Leviticus 23. So let's say the preacher said, and, and we, I didn't give you a verse. Leviticus 23, verses 5 and 6. This one is a very dis important distinction. And when you realize that about the Sabbath, then you're really safe from this whole idea of the lunar Sabbath. Because the lunar Sabbath, the main argument of the lunar Sabbath is the Sabbath is based on some calendar. It's not. So it's a non-issue straight away. Leviticus 23, the feasts were. Verse 5 and 6. All right, here we go. In the 14th day of the first month at even is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread unto the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. When he's telling them the first day of the month, and, uh, the four, sorry, the 14th day of the month and the 15th day of the month, that's how would they know the months? That's based on a calendar. 
In other words, the feast days could fall on any day of the week because they were not dependent on the count of successive days. They were dependent on a calendar. You with me? The seventh day Sabbath cannot just randomly fall on any day of the week. It always comes on the same day of the week, the seventh day. It's not based on a calendar. Your birthday is calendar-based, correct? You celebrate it every year on a different day of the week. Calendar-based events, they're not based on the week. They, 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 the week is not even relevant, you, whatever day happens. And this is the problem with the lunar Sabbath as well. When you accept the idea of the lunar Sabbath, the Sabbath can fall on any day of the week. Uh, with all due respect, that is total nonsense. That is total nonsense. As a matter of fact, when the cycle of months switches over from one month to the next, sometimes the week is longer than that. And there are people who say, well, you know, these days, sometimes you have nine days in the lunar Sabbath idea. Sometimes you have up to nine days between one Sabbath and the next. That automatically breaks the commandment because it's every seventh day. You know how people overcome that? They say, well, these other two days, they don't count. That's what they believe. I'm telling you what they believe. That's, um, so I'm going to say nonsense. I'm just trying to be, to be nasty about it. It is nonsense. It makes no sense. It is an error. It's one of the attacks uh, on the Sabbath. But we're not dealing with the lunar Sabbath. But I mention it here because it has to do with calendars. That people, I've seen people get caught up in trying to figure out these calendars and calendation. Now it's true. The biblical calendar that God gave to keep the feasts was a lunar calendar. He says on the first, if, uh, the, the month that they came out of Egypt was to be the first, months for, uh, month, first of the months for them. On the 14th day of that month, they did this. 15th day of the month, they did this. Uh, the, the festivals that happened on the seventh month are of uh, importance to us, particularly as Adventists. The uh, Day of Atonement was on the tenth day of the seventh month. Uh, Tabernacles was five days after that, right? Fifteenth day of seventh month. These are calendar dates, regardless of what day of the week. So that's a very big difference between those two. They were tied to a calendar. Uh, the Sabbath was designed to apply globally. It was not restricted to a location. The feast days were actually tied not only to a calendar, but also to a location. Let's look at that. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 16. Deuteronomy chapter 16. How are we doing on time here? Deuteronomy 16 and verse 6. And verse 15. I want you to notice carefully here what it says as well. Deuteronomy 16, verse 6 and verse 15. But at the place which the Lord thy God shall choose to place his name in, there thou shalt sacrifice the Passover at even, at the going down of the sun, at the season that thou camest forth out of Egypt. Question. Could they sacrifice the Passover at any place they chose? No. Who made the choice? God, and he says it's the place where God puts his name. Look at verse 15. Seven days shalt thou keep a solemn feast unto the Lord thy God in the place which the Lord shall choose, because the Lord thy God shall bless thee in all thine increase and in all the works of thine hands. Therefore thou shalt surely rejoice. This is referring to an entire feast, seven days. They were to keep it where? Anywhere they liked? No, at the place where? God chose or where God put his name. What place is that? Where did God place his name? It is in Jerusalem. God placed his name there. And so you have particularly what's referred to uh, as the pilgrimage feasts. The three feasts were 
Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, where people did not just keep them at home and sacrifice where they liked. No, they had to make pilgrimage. They had to go to Jerusalem because that's the place that God chose. That's the place where he put his name. And you could not keep the feast until you went to that place. So they were tied to a calendar, specific time. They were tied to a geographical location. God has not rescinded that. God has not withdrawn these qualifications or these uh, criteria for the feasts. He has not ever said, okay, now you can go keep them wherever. They were all tied together in that place. And in Jerusalem, obviously, there was the temple right there in Jerusalem. They were all tied together into that system. And the temple, the whole heartbeat of the temple, it was the hub of where all the sacrifices took place. That whole sacrificial system was now expanded and embodied in a temple, a priesthood, and special seasons or times or appointments where they were to sacrifice these things. And they were to come from wherever they were in Israel. And they were, three times a year, they would go to Jerusalem to keep the feasts. You don't have that restriction with the Sabbath. And this is why we're saying that the feast days were not meant for a global application. If you want to keep the feast today, you still have to go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. You realize that? I say that to people, I have friends, you know, and we discuss this. I have, I have friends who keep the feast. I say, brother, what, what are you talking about? You're keeping the feast. You're not keeping the feast. You're in, in Australia or you're in America or say here in New Zealand. God said you need to keep it in the place where he put his name. That's Jerusalem. Do you do that? Most people don't do that. Some people do. Most people don't do that. And so it's not really then biblical Feast keeping. Because you don't only need to go to Jerusalem, you also need to have a sacrifice. And to have a sacrifice, you need to do it in the way that God ordained. You need to have a temple and a priest. So it's a package, you with me? To separate just the feast from that and say the feasts are valid while everything else is not, is to separate what God has joined. There is no Bible authority for you to do that. You know someone else who did that? Is the Roman church with the seven-day Sabbath, right? God says the seven-day Sabbath is when? On the seventh day of the week. The Pope says, when is it? First day of the week. And you know what they call it? The Sabbath, right? They refer to it as the Sabbath. They say, but hold on. You, you want to keep the biblical Sabbath. It tells us when the biblical Sabbath is. You can't separate one condition and say when the Sabbath is. You give it the same name and you say that's the biblical Sabbath. In like manner, you can't separate the feast from the system and say, well, we call it the feast here, but you're not doing anything that God said you are to do on the feast. That is not feast keeping. You know, we went one time to a camp meeting in, in, in America, and it was a feast of tabernacles. All right, we were invited there to, to speak, and, and these were people who kept the feast. And, and so we went there. They invited us to, to go. And uh, one brother made a very interesting comment there at the camp. And he said, you know, we shouldn't call this the Feast of Tabernacles. We should call it the Feast of Cabins. And I said, what? What do you mean? He says, you know, cabins, because we're all staying in cabins. But tabernacles in the Bible, they were all meant to make booths and shelters. You know, they get the tree branches and make a booth. That's how they kept the tabernacle. And he was making a joke. And I laughed. And I said, I got it then. And I said, you know, that's a really good point. And the point simply is this, we're doing things on the feast that are required in the Bible. Sorry, we're not doing things on the feast that are required in the Bible. We're keeping our own thing and we're just calling it the Feast of Tabernacles. So with all uh, due respect, you know, it might sound nice that you say, oh, we call it the Feast of Tabernacles and you do that. That's not the biblical Feast of Tabernacles. You're not keeping the feast any more than we are. 
You're having it away in America and you're not carrying out the instructions of the feast. So you might convince yourself that you're keeping the feast and look, we're doing, you know, this good thing. No, not really. As a matter of fact, God does not require us to keep it at all because it was part of that system that came to an end. It was a shadow and it was a type. And so God's seventh day Sabbath is eternal. God has never revoked it. God has never taken back the seventh day Sabbath, whereas the feast days were temporary. The Bible says the law, you know, was till the seed should come. Let's look at that verse. That's an important verse to look at. Uh, Galatians chapter 3, because we link it with another one, and I want to make sure we see that one. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 19. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 19. And here the apostle writing, he says, Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come, to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. What's the purpose of the law, he's saying? When Paul here says the law, automatically what we think he's talking about is the ten Commandments. He's not just dealing with the Ten Commandments. He's in dealing with the entire system of law that God gave to Israel. Okay? This is, his, if, you, if you see the context of the entire epistle, this is what he's dealing with. He's saying, what is the purpose of the law? What does it serve? He says it was added because of sins, because of transgressions, until what? The seed should come. What's that talking about? The coming of the seed is the coming of Christ. In other words, the types that were contained in the law, that elsewhere Paul calls the law having a shadow of good things to come. These good things came with the coming of the seed. And it brought a fulfillment and a completion of those things. And so, by nature, they were temporary. They would last until that which they pointed forward to came about. And so two very different institutions. Now, this is not an exhaustive list of all the differences, okay? But this is just an, uh, a sample of it. It's quite impressive, right? There are many differences between the two. There are two different institutions in origin and in purpose, in method of calculation, in duration, in importance, and in application. They're different. You can't treat them as equals. You can't put them on the same footing. You can't put them in one package. They are vastly different. And when you see these differences, it actually becomes overwhelming. All of a sudden, you're impressed with the danger of actually ignoring all these differences to treat them as equal. And this is what happens with the idea that feasts are still necessary to be kept. All these differences are ignored or minimized, and they are all packaged together in one neat package, Sabbath and feast days. And as a matter of fact, people say, well, you know, the Sabbath is a blessing. This is one way a lot of people, you know, accept the feast because it's presented in a very positive light. Meaning, well, the Sabbath is a blessing. Are you blessed when you keep the Sabbath? What well, would you like more blessing? Of course, everybody wants more blessing. Who's going to say no to that, right? Say, well, if you keep the feasts, you will be also blessed. Why don't you just come to a feast camp and just see if you're blessed or not? So people, what they do, they go and, and they're curious or they're interested or whatever. And they'll go to a, a feast camp. And they will attend, and they will be very blessed. And they think, man, you know what? Maybe there's something to this feast keeping. 
because the camp was really nice and enjoyable. This happens, brothers and sisters. This is how things are presented. And the problem here is this. It's a mistaking of the blessing. Christ promised a blessing anytime two or three are gathered in his name, correct? Did he specify any period or limitation of place or time with that promise? At any time, you and me and brother Luke here, we can go outside under the tree tonight and gather in the name of Jesus. Jesus, he promised to do what? To be with us. Tomorrow I can go with Brother Mary up on the hill, different place, different time. And if we gather together in the name of Jesus to pray together, Jesus says he will be there to bless. There will be a blessing. We'll have a blessed season. Correct? So when there is a gathering of believers at a camp meeting, obviously it's happening in the name of who? Of Christ. So you think there will be a blessing there? Of course. What's the source of the blessing? Is it because they met at a particular season? No, it's because Christ is there to bless. So when you mistake the blessing of Christ's presence and attribute that to, oh, we're blessed because we kept this particular time, you are misunderstanding and misappropriating something. The feasts were not blessed, brothers and sisters. You know, if you have a camp at a non-feast time, you think you'll be blessed? Yeah, why? Because the blessing is not based on time anymore. The blessing is in Christ. So sadly, a lot of people, because they told that, they say, look, if you come to the camp and you're blessed, and they could go, and their chances are high that they will be blessed. And they conclude, well, you know what? Maybe this feast is right. Maybe there's something to that. And a lot of people, because of that, they, can, they say, well, maybe I should keep the feast. That's mistaking the blessing. We need to understand carefully how things are so we can rightly discern. Now, when God, this is another point I should mention. When someone stands up the front, whether it be minister or leader or whoever, and promises a blessing on God's behalf, when God has not made such a promise, you know what the Bible name for such a person is? A false prophet. When you promise something on God's behalf that God has not promised, you are a false prophet. In the Old Testament, it says that someone says something in the name of the Lord, and I did not send him. That's a false prophet. God has not given any blessing or sanctification with the feast days. There's no such promise. So when someone gets up, I'm not trying to say these people are false prophets. I'm saying the theology that presents this way is not authorized by God. It's dangerous. When someone gets up and makes a promise on God's behalf that God has not made, you're on dangerous ground. And sadly, because people, of course, are people. If I ask you a question here tonight, who wants to be more blessed? Everybody put their hands up. And so obviously people, they want more blessings. So if they're promised a blessing by some authoritative religious or spiritual figure, chances are, especially if someone you respect, chances are people will believe that. And then you go to a particular gathering, which is called a feast at the front. And it's not a biblical way to keep the feast anyway, but it's called a feast. And then you enjoy the season of fellowship because it's in Christ's name. And people then are led to conclude, well, it must be because of feast keeping. I should keep the feasts. Because I was blessed. That's mistaking the blessing. Jesus said that blessing is in, comes from him because of his presence. You know, someone promising a blessing on the behalf of God when God has not spoken. The Pope does that as well. For Sunday keeping, you know that? And they call it the Sabbath. Same thing, interesting, right? But here is something that's a little bit closer to home because these are Sabbath keepers who are getting caught up in this 
uh, need to keep the feasts. Now, the other thing is that people in so doing, they make their feelings the indicator for doctrine. Okay, your feelings, how you felt at a particular gathering is not the evidence of something being right or wrong or wrong. That's a very subjective way to determine things. We don't determine things by feelings. I'll give you a couple of examples. Example number one is biblical. Thomas, he made his feelings the criteria before he would believe that Jesus was risen, correct? He says, unless I feel with my hands, put my hands here and feel it, I will not believe. He had the testimony of, one, Jesus told them he would rise. Two, his disciples told him, we saw the Lord risen. Thomas says, no, I will make the condition for believing that that is true, my experience and my feelings. So Jesus put up with Thomas' weakness and he appears the next week and tells him, Thomas, come here, put your hand here, put your hand here. And then he rebuked him. He said, do you believe now? Be not faithless, but believing. To make feelings the criteria for believing something is one, faithless. Two, you will be misled if someone can manipulate your feelings. Feelings can easily be manipulated. I'll give you another example. I said I was going to give you two. If you go to Pentecostal churches, there are people there that speak in tongues, right? If it, is anyone from Pentecostal background here by any chance or used to experience tongues? Okay, we have a couple of hands. If, if you talk to people who, used to, who experience tongues, they will relate to you that they have incredible feeling of happiness, joy, closeness to God that confirms to them that that must be right. This is what convinces, and you know, it's very difficult, extremely difficult to try and show someone who has an experience like that from the Bible that this is not exactly the biblical tongues that the Bible talks about that this is something that is actually a deception. What happens there is the enemy is manipulating the feelings and using the feelings where now people make their judgment of the practice and the behavior based on how good they feel. You know what I'm talking about? Now that does not make it valid. So if you go to a feast camp and you feel good about it, that doesn't mean that all of a sudden feast keeping is right. That's a very subjective and very uh, deceptive way of trying to arrive at a teaching, whether it's right or whether it's wrong. Interestingly enough, not only is the devil good at manipulating our feelings, people can be good at manipulating other people's feelings. <coughs> Sorry? We don't trust our feelings. Yes, we, sh we shouldn't trust our feelings. Now, our relationship uh, doesn't mean that our relationship and interaction with God and truth is going to be feeling less. Of course, we can rejoice and be happy as Christians, but our feelings are not the basis on which we determine things. Because your feelings, my feelings can be manipulated. They are rather unpredictable. Sometimes you wake up on the wrong side of the bed and you have a bad day before the day even starts, right? It doesn't feel very good. Okay, so our feelings are very fickle. They come and go, a whole heap of factors can influence them. And actually, uh, people, even speakers, have an ability to manipulate the feelings of their audience in some ways. And make them feel really good and so on and so forth. And people take that as evidence, wow, you know? Such a good speaker, or such a powerful message. And sometimes what is being said or shared is error. You know what I'm talking about. So there are deceptions that we need to watch for. So this is the significant point about understanding the distinction and the difference and how and what we use to determine truth. So 
I'll leave it at that. I'm not going to go to maybe I'll mention just one one quote before I before I close because it's it's related to this point. And this is from the book Sketches Sketches from the Life of Paul. Okay? Which later became Acts of the Apostles. So it's an Acts of the Apostles as well, but this one is from LP Sketches from the Life of Paul, page 121 if you're taking notes, page 121. And this is what it says, commenting on the Council of Acts chapter 15, the council in Jerusalem. Excuse me. It says the council had on that occasion decided that the converts from the Jewish church might observe the ordinances of the Mosaic law if they chose. Now, what was the point of that council? What was the big debate? Circumcision, right? And circumcision was representative of the other requirements in the law of Moses. Were these things to be imposed on the Gentiles or not? Some said yes, some said no. That was what the council was about. So they were going to make a decision. And the decision that was made here was that the converts from Judaism might observe the ordinances of the Mosaic law if they chose. In other words, if you're a Jew who now became a Christian, because these things had become part of the national fabric of Judaism, these festivals, these ordinances, even circumcision, all that. If they still wanted to do that, there was liberty to allow them to do that, if they chose. But then it goes on. While those ordinances should not be made obligatory upon converts from the Gentiles. You with me? In other words, the Jews, if they wanted to continue some of these things, they could, because it became part of Judaism, even if they become Christian. But this was not to be imposed on the Gentiles. So as Gentiles, which most of us in this room are, probably all of us are, we do not need to be circumcised. And we do not keep, need to keep the ordinances of the law of Moses. Now it's interesting because it goes on to say, the opposing class, in other words, those who disagreed with this decision, the opposing class now took advantage of this to urge a distinction between the observers of the ceremonial law and those who did not observe it, holding that the latter were further from God than the former. In other words, they said, well, we keep the law of Moses, therefore we have extra benefits, we have extra blessings, we are therefore closer to God than you who are not keeping them. You know, this is the same argument that is put forth when it comes to feast keeping. Say, well, you know, there's more blessing. And if you want more blessing, you can keep it. And if you don't keep it, you will miss out on the blessing. That's tragic. Because one, it's not biblical. Two, it's based on the same principle that you're closer to God, or you gain God's favor, or you gain blessings from God based on some behavior that you carry out. If you keep the right calendar and the right feast at the right time, you can do the formula right, then you will get a blessing. If you get it wrong, well, tough luck. You don't get the blessing. And the idea and the belief exists that the Sabbath and the blessing of the Sabbath is incomplete. It's partial. You need these added benefits that are distributed in the feast days. And how that happens is by attaching the feast days to the Sabbath and saying they're just as valid. They're equally valid. And if you ignore them, you miss out on a blessing and therefore are further away from God. You know what? The, uh, the wise man said it well. There's no new thing under the sun. This is the same issue that they dealt with in the book of Acts. And the Judaizers that went around after Paul, disrupting the churches. And the Judaizers were Christians, by the way. 
There were converts from Judaism who were zealous for the law, who would go around and tell the Gentiles, you need to keep the law of Moses. You need to be circumcised or you can't be saved, even though you've accepted Christ. And some of the letters that Paul wrote were to deal with these Judaizers. The same problem exists today. <coughs> One manifestation of it is in this idea that you need to keep the feasts. You see the, you see the point here? Nothing's changed. And the Council of Acts has already settled this question for us. Hundreds of years ago. And yet here we are again. Why were the last days, brothers and sisters? And the devil, amazing that to Sabbath keepers, the devil can spin this idea. Where Sabbath keepers, thinking that they're honoring the Sabbath more, can end up actually destroying the Sabbath by attaching it to these things that are temporary in nature. You see, <coughs> there are people who find it difficult to accept the Sabbath as it is. Imagine if you tell them, no, no, not only the Sabbath, but they're also the, the feast days as well. That's, that actually gives them more excuse to reject the Sabbath. You realize that? There are many Christians out there who know that the feasts are no longer valid. So when you attach the feasts that are no longer valid, as far as keeping them is concerned, with the Sabbath, what you've done is you've given them the best excuse to reject the whole thing and reject the Sabbath as well. Because now you've made it where they stand or they fall together. And so... It's a danger that we need to watch for, that we don't destroy the Sabbath in this way. We need to maintain the hedge of protection that God put around the Sabbath. It's exclusive. We can't crowd things into it and, and try and cram more things into it, thinking we are making the Sabbath more important. We don't. We end up destroying the Sabbath. I hope that makes sense as just some food for thought, because this is an issue that has caused confusion to a lot of people. I've talked to a lot of people, and they're genuinely wondering and 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 questioning is there something to these feasts what about them how do we relate to them what's the relationship with the sabbath hopefully that can help answer some of these questions if there are more questions i'll be more than happy to talk to you afterward if you particularly believe that keeping the feast is valid uh, i would still really love to talk to you as well so I'm, I'm, I'm interested to discuss these things but we'll leave it at that let us protect the sabbath and let us seek to uphold it and maintain it in the place that God has put it. There is no other day like it. If you were blessed by this message, remember to subscribe and share it with others. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.